One of my favorite stories is told of old Joe, and old Joe was dying. For years, Joe has been at odds with Bill, formerly one of his best friends, wanting to straighten things out before he passed. Joe sent word to Bill to come and see him. When Bill arrived, Joe told him that he was afraid to go into eternity with such bad blood and bad feeling between them. Then, with great reluctance and great effort, Joe apologized for the things he had said and done. He also assured Bill that he, Joe, forgave him, Bill, for all of his offenses. Everything seemed fine, friendship mended, until Bill turned to leave the room. As Bill walked out of the room, Joe called out to him, Bill, remember, if I somehow miraculously get better and don't die, this forgiveness doesn't count. Why is it that we often have to wait until the very end to forgive one another? Why is it that only when our hands are tied behind our backs figuratively that we feel compelled or want to forgive? Why don't we forgive more naturally or more frequently? Perhaps it is because we feel that if we forgive someone, then we simply forget their atrocities. And we don't want to forget, especially if someone has hurt us deeply, We think that we are mandated in the scriptures to forgive and to forget because God does the same thing. We point to a verse like Hebrews chapter 8 verse 12 where it says God forgives and he remembers our sins no more. But if you study verses like that theologically, you are reminded that while God does forgive, being omniscient, all-knowing, God does not actually forget. So this remembering our sins no more, quote-unquote, simply means he doesn't use our offense to convict us again to death once he has saved us through our trust in his redemptive blood. It means even if you sin against God and he forgives you, he may punish you with the consequences of your sinful action, but he will never use that sin to condemn you back to hell. And therefore, the Bible, surprisingly, does not teach to forgive and to forget. But interestingly enough, the Bible teaches to forgive but not forget. What in the world am I talking about? That's what we want to unpack this morning as we continue our sermon series in titled Masterclass, Learning Important Life Lessons Through the Parables of Jesus. And we will take a look at the lesson of forgiveness this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. We will be taking a look at verses 21 to 35. Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. This is the background of why this parable is given. Look with me in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Peter asks a question that many of us want to ask God. If someone sins against me over and over, how many times should I allow it before I forgive him, before I don't forgive him? In other words, how many times should I forget what someone has done to me and still treat them with kindness? Peter suggests seven times for each individual. You see, the religious leaders at that time taught that you forgave someone three times for the same offense. So Peter's thinking, I'm going to double it and add one, and seven is a nice round good number, and so that should be good. And so he proposes seven, double plus one of what was the thought of that day. And probably to his surprise, Jesus replies this, verse 22. Jesus said to him, I Do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Jesus replies to Peter, not just seven times, but 490 times, if you're doing mental math. Is it 
the fact that Jesus is teaching that one just has to forgive and endure to the 490th time they sin against you, and then you no longer have to forgive them on the 491st time. I don't know about you, but I can't even last more than 100 times. If any of you can last the 490 times, please identify yourself. You must be a living saint. But Jesus isn't teaching that. The answer is no. Jesus was not advocating for the frequency of forgiveness. He is going to teach about forgiveness as a way of life. Forgiveness as a lifestyle. It is a way of life. How you operate every day. Now this may pose some interesting questions perhaps in your mind. Some of you are sitting in the pews at this moment thinking, then does that mean that I should allow everyone to take advantage of me if I'm a Christian? Should I never retaliate? Should I never fight back? What if the offenses are so big that I just can't find the heart to forgive them? Should I never use the legal system to protect my rights? Well, Jesus knew that we would all struggle with living out forgiveness as a way of life. So he gives a parable, a story, which would illustrate some principles of forgiveness that will encourage us, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to make forgiveness a part of our life as a way of life. Now listen carefully. In a sermon like this, especially on the topic of forgiveness, each of you this morning will Listen only to the parts that you want to hear from this sermon. If perhaps you are the victim, you will say that the perpetrator should always apologize. If you are the perpetrator, you will think the victim must always forgive me. And so you're going to hear this sermon, and you're going to go back into your cars, and you're going to go back into your meal tables, and you'll discuss this sermon, and you'll say, well, Pastor Steve said this. This morning, I'm going to ask you to take away your bias and ask the Holy Spirit to give you a clean heart so that you can self-examine your heart and perhaps to lead you, the victim, to forgive and to lead you, the perpetrator, to make amends. Now look at verse 23 to 25 as we study the parable that Jesus gives. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commended that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. Jesus tells a story of a king who wanted to settle the accounts of all of his subjects who owed him money. And so perhaps he got his treasury officials to start collecting on the monies owed him. There was a man who owed him 10,000 talents, and he was brought before the king to settle this account. Now I know that talents as a monetary denomination doesn't relate to us since we don't use it. But a talent was about 75 pounds of silver, And so 10,000 talents, if my math is correct, is 750,000 pounds of silver. At yesterday's price, I checked of $185 per pound. That comes out to $139 million. Let's factor in inflation and round it up to $140 million. Or with an exchange rate of 50 to 1, that's 7 billion pesos. This man owed the king... Seven billion pesos. The reason I do this is to put it into a context you can understand. This was an amount that that man, nor any of us today, would be able to pay back. Because if you're sitting this morning and saying to yourself, well, seven billion pesos, I can pay that back. That's not so big of an amount. If you can say that in your mind, please come and talk to me. I have some ministry needs that you may want to fund. Jesus used an example with a very large, unpayable sum because he wanted to stress the point that this man in his lifetime would have no ability to pay the king back. 
And so the king commanded that this man be sold into slavery along with his wife and children and all of his possessions to try to at least recoup some of what was owed him. Now as you read this story, you may think that this king is so horrible, an evil king, someone who isn't very kind and forgiving. He should just forget the amount and not sell the man into slavery because if a king has enough money to lend 7 billion pesos and still not be affected, he must have riches untold. But I want you to look at the parable in detail. The Bible tells us that this king is not described as a wicked king. The king here is not condemned for his action. In fact, this king is presented by Jesus as one who is well within his right to do as he has done, which is to collect on what was owed him. You may be thinking, well, this is a dumb king. Why would he lend 7 billion pesos without at least getting some back and understanding whether this man is able to pay or not? That is a side note. It doesn't really matter. It is the fact that this man owes the king 7 billion pesos. Now, this principle is important to understand because, listen carefully, if you owe someone money, you need to pay them back, period, end of story. The Bible is very black and white in this regard. Regardless of the circumstances of how you came to owe the money, if you borrow money or someone lends you money, you have full obligations to pay them back. The Bible is replete with verses that speak of this. Matthew 22, verse 17 to 21. Proverbs 22, verse 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 5. Proverbs 37, verse 21. In fact, in Proverbs 37, verse 21, it calls those who borrow but do not pay back, he calls them wicked Notice the Bible doesn't talk about the circumstances for one's inability to pay back. The Bible allows for no excuse for why one is not able to pay back. Simply that if you take out a loan or borrow money, you have an obligation to pay them back even if you have to work until your last breath on this earth. That is your obligation. And this debt is not clear cleared unless there is an indication that that debt or obligation has been forgiven from the one it is owed. So we don't know in this story how long the debt had been held for, and it doesn't matter. Perhaps that servant is thinking, well, the king has so much money, he doesn't need what I owe him. Perhaps he was thinking, well, for 30 years, the king has not sent me a notice of payment. Maybe he forgot. He did not remind me to pay him back. Therefore, maybe he has forgiven my debt. The Bible teaches very clearly, if one has borrowed money, then it is under their obligation to pay them back. Why? Why? Because the paying back of one's debt is a testimony to the world of what Christian integrity looks like. When we pay back what we owe, we are telling the world that I am a Christian and Christians are men and women of character and integrity. And because my Leader, Jesus Christ, has told me this is my obligation, therefore I will meet my obligation. Not because I want to, but because it is a testimony. But sadly, there are so many Christians today who somehow feel that by virtue of them being a Christian, that they do not need to fulfill their obligations they are destroying the testimony of a Christ follower. Look what the servant does in verse 26 to 27. 
The servant therefore fell down before the king, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. The servant begs the king not to sell him and his family into slavery and promises to work the rest of his life to pay back the debt. Somehow the king was moved with compassion and surprised perhaps many in his court when he released the debt obligation of this man in his mind paid in full and said, you owe me nothing, seven billion pesos. Now I want you to listen very carefully. The king is under no obligation to have done this. But he does so because of his compassion. The only right that a borrower has is that he has the right to plead and to appeal for the lender to be compassionate and to perhaps change the terms of the loan. But he or she should not expect that the lenders obliged and obligated to act favorably or even show compassion. The lender has every right to collect on that which is borrowed from the lender. Remember that. The lender has every right to collect on what was borrowed. So Christians, please, if you borrow money from a fellow Christian or a fellow church member, I don't want you to go away thinking that somehow you can then show them this parable and say, well, look, the parable teaches that you, the lender, should be compassionate towards me and forgive all of my debt. That is not what the parable is teaching. But yet we do it all the time. That's why I said you will always look through the lenses of your bias at this parable based on your situation. The lender has every right to collect. It is his right whether to show compassion or not. In this case, the borrower has no right to change the terms and conditions. In fact, that's why Proverbs 22 verse 7 calls the borrower, note this, a slave to the lender. That's what the Bible calls one who borrows, a slave to the lender. So my friends, if you owe someone something, don't get mad if they don't forgive your loans. Even if they are a fellow Christian in this church, don't badmouth them. Don't call them uncompassionate. If they don't give you grace or mercy or lower your obligation, because the responsibility is on you to pay them back not on them to show grace to you. Let me repeat that because that's important. The responsibility in the Scripture is on you to pay someone else back, and it is not the responsibility of them to show grace to you. Because, my friends, if you knowingly borrow money with no capacity, no ability, no willingness to pay them back when they actually have the money, then the Bible calls you a fraud. The Bible says you have sinned. Now, on the other hand, if you're going to lend someone money, especially a friend or a family member, listen carefully, lend them only if you don't expect them to pay you back. Lend them only the amount that would not make you feel bad if you never got it back. Treat the loan as if a gift. That is only for the lender because some of you borrowers are thinking, well, Pastor Steve said the loan is a gift. I didn't say that. I said, if you are the lender and you're going to lend an amount, you treat the loan as a gift so that if they pay you back when they get on their two feet, that's wonderful. But if they never pay you back or they're unwilling to pay you back, then your friendship is not severed, and your family relationship is not destroyed. If you are unable to treat that loan as a gift, then listen carefully, do not lend them. Now, if you want to lend them, and it is not a gift, then you better make sure you draw it out on a contract. 
even amongst the closest friends and the closest family members. Make it legal. Have it notarized, black and white. I can't tell you how many relationships in our church between family and friends have been severed and broken, 50 plus that I can count off on the top of my head in this decade of pastorate because of misunderstandings in this area because it wasn't made clear legally black and white. Now on the flip side, just because it is not black and white doesn't mean the borrower does not have an obligation to pay you back if there is a good faith understanding that it was a loan. So I think I've covered all the bases. I remember the story of a train that was traveling through Europe on its way to Paris. The train was held up by some mass bandits, some robbers, some thieves. Two friends were sitting on that train to Paris, and they were among the passengers. And when they saw the thieves come, one said to the other, here's where we lose all of our money. The other friend said, as the robber entered the train car, you don't think they'll take everything, do you? He asked nervously. The first replied, certainly. These professional thieves never miss anything. The second friend said, well, that's terrible. Are you quite sure they won't leave us any money? The first said, of course. Why do you ask? There was silence for a minute. Then taking a $50 bill from his pocket, the second handed it to his friend. The first friend said, well, what's this for, taking the money? The second friend said, here's the $50 I owe you. Now we're even. I want you to think about that. Some of you still don't get it. But you conniving ones, you mischievous ones, you who think 10 steps ahead, you got it. Why is it that in the payback of what we owe, it's so difficult? Now, this parable is not about loans. It's not about borrowing or paying back. It is about forgiveness. But Jesus uses something that 99.9% .9 of us have encountered, an experience where it brings out the passions of our hearts. Because either we are the lender, or we are the borrower, or we are both. So back to the parable, this man has just had his unpayable debt forgiven. He must be ecstatic with joy. Seven billion pesos in today's money. Such great grace and mercy shown to him by the king. He was the recipient of grace and mercy. What do recipients of grace and mercy do? We would think that they would naturally share grace and mercy to others. Or perhaps not. Look at verse 28. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the neck saying, Pay me what you owe. Now here's the servant who's just had seven billion pesos wiped off his loan sheet, runs into a servant who owns him a hundred denarii. A denarii is a day's wage for the common laborer of the ancient Near East. So in our present day context, it's about 500 50 pesos, give or take a few pesos. A hundred denarii would mean that this second servant owes the first servant 55,000 pesos. When you compare 7 billion pesos to 55,000 pesos, it's nothing. But the first servant puts his hand on the second servant's throat and yells at the man, pay me what you owe. Look what happens, verse 29 to 30. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. The second servant begged the first servant, like the first servant had begged the king, Be patient with me. I will work to pay off this debt. But the first servant would show no grace or mercy. And listen carefully. He had him legally thrown into prison until he could pay off his debt. If I were to ask you this morning, was it within the right of the first servant to demand that the second servant pay him back? The answer would be yes. 
Yes. But in the greater context of knowing that the first servant just had 7 billion pesos wiped off from his debt sheet, you may think again. So how many of you, having read this parable many a times, would think, boy, this first servant is just pure evil. Pure evil. I would never be like him. I would never do such a thing as the first servant. That's what we think. We read this story through the lenses of our own bias, and none of us would ever identify with that first servant. Well, here, my friends, I'm here to tell you, every one of us is like that first servant. Because we've forgotten that we had the unpayable debt of sin wiped clean from our accounts. The debt of sin was unpayable. It doesn't matter how much good works or how much money you throw at God. The penalty for sin is death. God required your life. That's what is called the wages of sin. But God, desiring fellowship with His people, paid the price on our behalf through His own Son and the shedding of the Son's blood. And so this unpayable debt called sin was paid in full by God Himself. And every one of us would have to acknowledge that we were the recipient of great grace and mercy, that your life and my life had more than 7 billion pesos wiped off. We had our very lives given back to us. We are the recipient of great grace and mercy. And therefore, naturally, one would assume we would show grace and mercy to others, but sadly, because we've forgotten that we have been forgiven, we always want grace and forgiveness shown to us, but we don't want to give it to others. And so the first principle, number one, if you want forgiveness to be a way of life in your life, that you need to remember this, number one, forgive because you have been forgiven. Forgive because you have been forgiven. That's how forgiveness becomes a way of life, an attitude. I cannot compel you to forgive someone if you have the rights to do what you are going to do. But perhaps there can be an appeal in your hearts to forgive because you have been forgiven. Now, forgiveness does not mean you were not wronged. Forgiveness does not mean that someone else is not at fault. Forgiveness does not mean that you give up your right to collect on what is owed you. Forgiveness does not mean that you allow others to pick on you. Forgiveness does not mean you don't use the judicial legal system to protect your rights. But forgiveness as a way of life means you remember that you have been forgiven an un unpayable debt. And so perhaps it would move and stir in your heart to also show grace in forgiveness. But how you show that forgiveness in tangible ways is between you and God. So perhaps when that tricycle driver or that jeepney driver in his aggression to get into your lane bumps into your car, leaves a few scratches in your car, but you're so angry that you jump out and you want to seek their ruin. You force your way to my lane that perhaps the reminder that you have been forgiven would calm you down and to realize that the driver of that tricycle or that jeepney, although he is at fault, would make a little more than a daily wage and look what you have. And so you realize at the end of the day, you're not going to get anything from them anyways. And so you just let it go. Not because they were not wrong. And not because you were not angry. And not because you didn't have the right to sue them. But because you have been forgiven. Or perhaps as you have just bought 
a coffee from Starbucks. Someone, because they're texting, accidentally bumps into you in their carelessness with such force that you drop your cup of coffee and you just want to scream out, Hey, watch where you're going. You need to buy me another cup of coffee. Do you know how much that coffee costs? But perhaps as you are ready to retaliate, you calm yourself for that moment, and you just let them go and simply tell them, just be more careful next time. As you turn around and go buy another cup of coffee, which technically you didn't need to do, but you are reminded and remember that an unpayable debt was paid on your behalf, which allows you to forgive the one who bumped into you. Or when your wife's Samsung Note 4 battery explodes, causes damage, and you realize you can sue Samsung and make lots of money, but then you realize you're family's okay and no one has lost their fingers and other than a scare you just tell them replace my phone and we'll be done with it even though others are telling you you can earn a hundred thousand dollars in litigation and even perhaps get them to throw in a free fridge or a free washer and dryer from them you just let it go and forgive them because you have had an unpayable debt forgiven. And we can go on and on, but these, my friends, are the daily decisions you and I make whether we want to forgive someone or not. And none of us will naturally want to forgive because we all have rights. But because you have had an unpayable debt forgiven, I keep repeating that because I need you to understand that sin is a debt you could not have paid yourself. But we forget that. You could have never paid that debt in your lifetime, even with your own life. And yet it was. Can we not forgive others? Apparently there were others who witnessed this incident. Look at verse 31 to 33. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should I not also have had compassion? Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? It is now in verse 32 that this first servant is called wicked for the first time. The king forgives the debtor because he begged for compassion. And so the natural expectation of the king is that the first servant would show compassion and pity to all others in all areas of life. Not simply limiting it to the issue of lending and borrowing. One who receives grace, great grace, abundant grace, should be willing to give it out to all people at all times. Because a life redeemed means that they were given a second chance to live their life for the better. That's the king's point. I showed you grace and pity and forgave your debt. You should do the same for others to live your life better, not always fighting for your rights. Remember, we established the point that the first servant had every right to demand of the second servant what was owed him. Because if you have been forgiven, listen carefully, someone else's rights were not fully exercised. If you have been forgiven, then someone else's rights were not fully exercised. Therefore, you should also not fully exercise your rights if you so choose. The world is expecting us to fight tooth and nail for our rights. You, you, you can say, well, the forgiveness of the king to the first servant was the choice of the king. And so the king chose not to exercise his full rights. But the forgiveness of the first servant to the second servant was his choice. 
and technically he could have exercised his full rights no under no obligation to forgive the second servant servant but the only reason one would want to do so is because they no longer want to fight for the fullest extent of their rights because they live for something more. The king's point was, because I gave you a second chance, you would want to live a better life, to live for something more, to give up your rights and to learn to forgive. You see, the second thing we need to remember, number two, to cultivate a lifestyle of forgiveness or forgiveness as a way of life, number two, is to forgive to show others that you live for eternity. Forgive to show others that you live for eternity. When you and I forgive, we show that we don't have to fight for the things of the world and for every single right that we have because we have been made aware that this life will pass and we have eternity to live. In view of eternity, these things don't matter. It is because Christians do not necessarily live for eternity that they will fight tooth and nail for everything. They will allow their families to be destroyed for 10,000 pesos. They will allow friendships to be broken because of a little misunderstanding. All because, all because everyone is prideful, no one will let go. Everyone holds forth to their rights. When God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, Jesus gave up all of His divine rights to die on our behalf. He chose not to fully exercise His rights. And here we are, the recipient of grace, and we are unable to let go for even the smallest of things. For my friends, when you learn to forgive, you show the world and others, even your family members, that while you have the rights in this world, the things of the world mean nothing to you. You are willing to take a loss in view of eternity. Last Sunday, as I was driving to Makati to preach at a church there, I was involved in an accident with a motorcycle at the corner of Lakson and Kuav. And you know how it is with the laws of our nation that it is never the fault of the motorcyclist. It's always the fault of the one in the car. As that accident happened, I stopped the car, walked out, a crowd began to gather. There were a lot of noises. You know my inability to speak Tagalog. And so it became a very tense situation. The police came. And uh, things escalated. And so to mitigate this escalating issue, I offered to settle with the motorcyclist, this tandem, uh, with the money that I had in my wallet, had 3,000 pesos, and I said, would you take this? They were hesitant to accept. The crowd was getting larger. And uh, again, to diffuse the situation, I said, here's my business card, my church card. I'm a pastor. Just contact me if this money isn't enough. Right when those words came out of my mouth, I regretted saying it. You know why. Well, they were more assured, and I went and met my obligations that Sunday morning. Well, I got a message on Monday uh, through Facebook Messenger. It's not hard to find me saying that the cost of the motorcycle repair was 4,000 pesos. I remember when I looked at the motorcycle laying on the ground, the only thing that seemed broken was the side mirror. And everyone knows that on Banawi you can get a side mirror for 300 pesos. And there were additional hospital costs and x-rays and 
the person who wrote was saying that she was still at the hospital. And so I thought to myself, well, here it comes. I'm going to be scammed. I've heard all of the bad stories. And so I offered an additional 5000 to cover the repairs and all of their medical costs. I wasn't sure whether I should do that because at that moment, the rights that I knew I had began to come to the surface of my mind. I thought to myself, I know a lot of really good lawyers. Many of them come to our church. I know many influential people at church that I could call on that with one phone call, this goes away. And so I began to think, should I fight for the rights or should I just see we can try to settle this? And don't you hate it when the Holy Spirit talks to you? It's never fun. And this message had been in my mind as I had prepared it, and this point came to the forefront of my head. Forgive to show others that you live for eternity. And they knew I was a pastor. I had given them my card. I offered 5000 along with the 3000 I had given them on Sunday to hopefully cover what they claimed was repairs for the motorcycle and their medical test. To my surprise, the person wrote back and said, Pastor, you don't need to send 5000 An additional three is enough. To which I was a bit taken aback. Maybe they are legitimate uh, in what they were telling me. And I said, no, I've offered 5000 Take it as from the Lord. And if you have any leftovers, or if you, uh, it's a bit less uh, in terms of cost and medical bills, why don't you use the 2000 and take your family to a nice meal or something. In reply, the person wrote, Pastor, you have such a good heart as pastors should be, or should have, which made me feel good. And I ended with wishing them well. I would be praying for their full recovery, although I didn't see any blood at the time of the accident, but I would be praying for them. That's between them and God. See, the fighting of the rights always come to the forefront of your head. And I told them, if you get better, you're welcome to come to our church. You know, we fight for our rights every single day. I could have asked for documentation from their doctors in the hospital. I could have asked for receipts from the repair shop. But my time would have been wasted. Theirs also. If I just want to show them, I live for eternity. I'm not saying that I'm a holy, godly person. Anyone who knows me knows that I always fight for my rights. I'm a fighter. And we all have rights and we fight for it every day. We struggle with it. But is it worth one's testimony? How much more can you show the world that you are a Christ follower by fighting for your rights or showing forgiveness? It is a struggle I know that all of you will go through. But remember... Forgiveness shows others that you live for eternity. Think about such things when you are fighting for your rights. Verse 34 to 35. And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother in trespasses. Surprisingly, this wicked first servant was not thrown into jail. But note how the parable ends. He was delivered to the torturers, even worse. And the king had every right to throw him into the torturers because he's king, he's sovereign. There he would be tortured until he can pay back because notice in verse 34, the master is angry. 
Now, this parable is not teaching about the loss of salvation. One cannot lose their salvation. But verse 34 and 35 is teaching a, a principle that there seemingly is a correlation between how God deals with us in grace based on how we deal with others in grace. You see, while we are to show grace because God has shown us grace, that was the first point, the continuation of showing more grace and more mercy to others in the form of forgiveness somehow is proportional to how God will continue to show and lavish upon us grace and mercy in the future. The gracious king is now rightfully angry and no longer shows mercy and grace to the one who earlier he had shown mercy and grace to. Why? For the simple notion that this first servant wasn't gracious to the second, even though it's within his right. Therefore, in verse 35, we're told that God the Father will treat us based on how we treat others. If we show grace and mercy, evidenced in forgiveness, then more grace and mercy will be shown us. And here is the third point. To allow you to cultivate forgiveness as a way of life, number three, forgive so that God's grace and mercy will be more abundant in your life. Forgive so that God's grace and mercy will be more abundant in your life. We don't know the heavenly formula for how this works. That's a secret of God. But how you show grace and mercy is in a heavenly formula proportional to how God will ensure that you receive grace and mercy from Him. This is a promise. If you want to be the recipient of more of what you do not deserve, then show grace and mercy evidenced in forgiveness to others. You can fight for your rights, absolutely. You can fight for your rights. And that's what so many people do. They fight for their rights until their last dying breath. And you may win on this earth. And you may get what you want. But God also has every right in this life not to show you grace and mercy because that is His right to extend or not. There are so many people who don't understand this principle. They're still fighting. And yet what they don't realize is that they're fighting a losing battle. While they may win temporarily, they do not get more of God's grace and mercy. I remember the story uh, of a young boy in Korea, this Korean young man, young boy, who was a houseboy, a helper for some American soldier stationed in Korea. Because of the playfulness uh, of the American culture, somehow they thought it would be funny to play harmless jokes on their house helper, this young Korean boy. And so they teased him. They would tie his shoestring together with him not knowing it, and when he stood up to walk, he would fall down. They would lock him out of the house where he would have to climb the wall to get into the house to do his job. Eventually, they realized that their practical jokes were not viewed as funny in the Korean culture, especially by this boy, and so they meant no harm, and so they wanted to apologize. They called this little boy to them, and they said, we are so sorry. We are so sorry to have offended you. We didn't realize that these teasings and these harmless jokes were not viewed funny in your culture, and I'm sure you didn't appreciate it. Would you forgive us? The houseboy said to the American soldiers, yes, sir, I accept your forgiveness. I will also now stop spitting in your soup. I love this story. It reminds us that there are times we don't know how a little extension of 
grace and mercy and forgiveness will reciprocate us tenfold that which do not know what is occurring in our life. Figuratively, there may be people spitting in your soup every day. But a little bit of grace and mercy, evidence and forgiveness would cause them to think again whether they will spit into your soup or not. So as they say, be kind to your servers this lunch. They control what is served to you. In a greater capacity, God doesn't spit into our soup for sure, but he can choose to withhold his grace and mercy, which is his prerogative. But he says to us, if we show grace and mercy to others and forgiveness, he will extend that grace and mercy even more to us. Remember that beginning phrase, forgive and forget. I said that it's not taught in the scriptures. But forgive, but don't forget. Yes, how? Forgive, but don't forget that you forgive because God has forgiven you. Forgive, but don't forget that you forgive to show others that you live for eternity. Forgive, but don't forget that you forgive so that God's grace and mercy will be more abundant in your life. Forgive, but don't forget. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is a wonderful reminder even in my life. For one who always fights for his rights, who wants everything to be settled in this lifetime, he has sometimes caused in my heart an unforgiving spirit. May it be this morning that as your word hopefully has touched the hearts of men and women, that we would make forgiveness a part of our life, a way of life, a lifestyle. Not because we want to, because no one wants to forgive, but remembering of the unpayable debt that you paid on our behalf. And how by living a lifestyle of forgiveness, it shows the world we live for eternity. And so it is as we live a life of forgiveness, we are comforted knowing that more grace and mercy will be showered into our life, things we don't deserve. Father, take away the pride of our hearts. Take away that which we cling so strongly to so that we can do just this, to forgive and show the world this Jesus Christ we so love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.